Hey guys, as I introduce Zach and Jean Thomas, I want to take uh, just a second to talk about why we're doing this, what we're doing this morning. Just a minute ago, I talked about Philippians 4.8. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, we need to think, we need to consider, we need to, uh, on these things. Um, and this, I want to add to that a little bit. This morning I was talking to new members coming into our church and talking about the culture of Crosspoint, kind of why we do some of the things that we do. And talked about in the beginning of our, uh, our church coming together, we said, hey, there's a lot of things we're passionate about, but we need to dial that in. So, so how do we communicate what we're passionate about at Crosspoint? So we said, hey, we're passionate about knowing God, being known, and about making him known. And we talked about how we typically teach and equip our members of our body through teaching through the Word of God as we uh, teach in an expository way, letting the living and active Word of God do what it does and trying not to add to that with our own personal opinion, but just letting His Word pierce hearts and move people into a response to Him. And, and we also talked about how uh, giving testimony is a part of what we do here. It's a way that we know God through hearing what God has done through another person's life. It's a, it's a way that we uh, are known uh, as we hear uh, really uh, what's going on behind the scenes in a couple's life. And it's a way that we make him known because as a couple shares about what God's doing in their life, it's a witness to what he's done in their life. And so uh, at, at times at Crosspoint, about once or twice a year, we pause uh, and we hear testimony because we believe that it checks all those boxes of helping us know God, be known, and make him known. It's not for our entertainment, but it's for our encouragement. It's to equip us. It's to give glory to God, and it's for our good. Uh, Hebrews 10.25 says, let us consider how we might stir one another up towards love and good deeds, right? And so we've considered these things uh, as elders at Crosspoint, and I want you to know that that a lot of thought has gone in through into how we present testimony. It's not about, hey, a couple was doing these bad things and now they're doing these good things and they're all better because of what Christ has done. It's, hey, here's where we were and here's where God was in that. Uh, here's where we are and here's where God is in this and here's how he's continuing to lead us and teach us in our story is we're not complete. We're, we're not all better. And, and so, uh, I want to encourage you guys, if you're here this morning, you're going to hear a lot of good things as Zach and Gene share. You're going to hear some hard things. Uh, know that we have filtered through some of the way this is communicated because we've got kids in the service, and guys, there'll be opportunity for you to have further conversations with your kids after the service today, if you so choose. But uh, we've thought through these things. Um, again, it's not for entertainment, it's encouragement. It's today, it's, but if you're here and you are struggling, uh, we hope that today is a day of hope for you. Right? There may be some of you who have wiped off the mascara before you come through the front door this morning. Guys, we get that. We get that week after week, so many of us fake it. Right? We have these struggles throughout the week. We walk into church on Sunday morning. We put this church face on, and we say, we're fine, we're good. And here's the thing. We see all these other people who are fine and good, and then we feel like we can't really relate to anybody because everybody else is fine and good all the time. And we have passionately tried to fight against that at Crosspoint, where this can be an authentic and real culture to where you know that this is a safe place for you to struggle alongside other believers. And so guys, if that was you this morning, if you wiped the mascara off before you came in, I hope that you find hope in their story, and I hope this leads to healing in your life, and I hope that today encourages you to be real with others in your life uh, so that you can bring whatever's in the, in the dark into the light and allow God to heal that. So I'm going to invite Zach and Jean Thomas to come up this morning and share their story with us. If you guys would welcome them. I just want to set the stage here. Gene and I are both going to be sharing the same story, but from different perspectives. So it was important for us to script it out so that we could stay on point 
and we wouldn't confuse you guys by going off on a tangent somewhere. I also would like to say that um, this is an emotional thing for us to talk about, and we can't control when those emotions come to the surface. So I just pray that you guys give us a little grace and patience as we kind of work through these subjects that we're bringing up, even though they happened in the past 14, 13 years ago. They're still raw. They're still 100%. The same feeling we saw on that day that this, uh, this tragedy hit our family. But it's our prayer that it's not about us. It's about what God wants us to speak and what God wants you to hear him say today out of our testimony. Okay? Thank you. Zach and I met in 1978 at a company where we both worked. We did not grow up in Christian homes, and not knowing any differently, we moved in together two months after we started dating. We followed the ways of our parents, who were divorced at least once, and lived with their significant others before marrying them, if they did get married. Our wedding took place three years later. We were best friends, and our relationship was great for several years, with arguments being rare. Like Jean said, neither one of us grew up in a Christian home. In fact, um, my parents were quite worldly. They even frowned upon religion. I think they only took us to church as kids one time in my whole upbringing. But I think it's safe to say that neither one of us had a good role model growing up. Both of our parents would marry and divorce multiple times. Growing up without a father and watching the breakup of my family on multiple occasions made me a very angry young man. As a result, I got into all sorts of trouble. You know, when I first met Jean, she seemed so happy, carefree, and content. That's one of the reasons why I think I fell in love with her. Another reason was is that we both wanted the same things out of life. We wanted a re relationship. We wanted love. We wanted security. And we wanted a sense of belonging. The only problem was is we didn't know what that looked like or how to get it. We both acknowledged Christ as our Savior during premarital counseling in 1981. I say Savior because we didn't live as if he was Lord shortly after that. We were baptized together after our wedding, and I thought that our baptism was more emotionally and spiritually beautiful than our wedding. We attended church for several months, but then quit attending any until 1988 after moving to the country. We decided to check out a church that a neighbor invited us to when we started questioning things as life got harder. Over the years, we continued to grow in our faith. We're Sunday school teachers, worked with at-risk teens, went on mission trips, and attended church regularly. I can remember one night when I was a teenager being extremely angry over the fact that my father had abandoned his family yet again for the third time. I was so mad that I shook my fist towards heaven and I dared God to take my life. I said, if you're real, if you really do exist, then just take my life tonight because I don't want it anymore. Ephesians chapter two says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And that's the way I felt. I felt like I had no hope. I was alone, and I had no hope in this world. Well, God didn't take me up on my challenge that night, or so I thought. It wasn't until we were talking to a Baptist minister during marriage counseling. 
that I finally realized what God had done. God did hear my cry that night, but he didn't respond in the way that I would have expected. I remember asking God just to end my life that night because I didn't think it was worth living anymore. Well, as you can see now, God clearly didn't end my life. But looking back on that time, I can clearly identify several people that God sent into my life to speak words of faith and encouragement and to share the gospel. Instead of responding in the judgment that I so deserved, God reached out to me as a loving father. And though it took several years, I would accept Christ as my Lord and Savior, and Gene and I began our life of faith together as a married couple. Instead of ending my life, God gave me a new life in Christ. We struggled, struggled financially while raising a family, and the fin financial strain led to numerous arguments. Our individual financial views were so different. If you use Dave Ramsey's terms, I'm the nerd and Zach is the free-spirited. We would argue about how to raise our two boys. Our older son, Seth, told us one time how proud he was that Zach and I had remained married. He also admitted that our arguments scared both him and his brother. They were so afraid that we would divorce. I never saw our arguments as being bad enough to scare the boys or that our marriage was so bad that it should end. I saw it as something to fix. I bought the Boundaries in Marriage book and workbook for us to go through a few months before Seth's death. Other than that, we didn't know how to get it fixed. We were spiritually raised in a church that taught you'll have what you say and that praying in faith would fix whatever was wrong. We didn't know how to fix anything and we didn't have any role models or any mentors to show us how. Even though our marriage relationship was bad, I stuck with it for the sake of the kids. I didn't know a whole lot, but I knew one thing for sure. I wasn't going to abandon my children the way my father had abandoned his. In fact, I couldn't think of anything worse for a father to do than to walk out on his kids. So I promised myself that no matter what, I would be there for my children until they decide to move out on their own. On December 12, 2004, I went outside before breakfast with our two dogs and a cup of coffee. I noticed that Seth's car wasn't in the driveway and went back into the house to tell Zach that Seth's car wasn't there. We both looked in his room. Maybe he got home another way. I also checked my phone for any missed calls or text messages. We woke up our younger son, Sean, and told him that Seth wasn't home. We tried to call him and only got his voicemail message. Hi, this is Seth, leave a message. I called Seth's girlfriend, Valerie, to ask if she knew where he was. I woke her up and she wasn't thinking clearly at first. She looked in the guest bedroom and then she said, he wasn't there. She left her house to travel towards our, ours on Highway 380, the highway Seth always took. We left our house toward hers. Maybe his car was on the side of the road. We met Valerie along the way and she parked her car, in, parked her car to get into ours. Our two-hour search included stopping at the McKinney Hospital to see if he was there. He wasn't. We learned after two hours of searching that Seth had been in a car wreck and was flown by helicopter to Parkland Hospital at about 1 a.m. The morning of our son's accident was, was a very difficult morning and it was kind of surreal for us. You know, we weren't notified by any of the first responders or authorities that our son had been in a serious accident. It was up to us to search for him until we eventually found him. The sheriff's office eventually told us that a young man matching Seth's description had been taken to Parkland Memorial Hospital early that morning. 
When I called the hospital, the administrator would neither confirm nor deny that he was there. They simply said we need to get there as soon as we can. So Jean, Valerie, which was Seth's girlfriend, and I headed to Parkland. When we got there, they kept us waiting for what seemed to be an eternity. We kept asking questions but weren't getting any answers. The head nurse finally came out to talk to us and I asked her about my son. She acknowledged he was there and agreed to take us to him. As we walked down the long hallway, I grew more and more frustrated with the situation. I finally stopped the nurse in her tracks and I said, I have to know if my son is alive or dead. Without saying a word, she gave us a sympathetic look and confirmed our worst fears. Jean and Valerie were standing on either side of me. Both of them collapsed to the floor. We were all in shock. Jean could hardly breathe and Valerie was crying uncontrollably. The doctor on duty heard the commotion and came in to see what was happening. The head nurse looked right at him and said, look, this family's been waiting long enough. So I just had to tell them. They'd been through enough and we just finally had to tell them that their son's dead. When we finally regained our composure, they took us to see Seth. <clears throat> he was so swollen and disfigured, the only way we knew it was him for sure was by a tattoo on his shoulder that he designed. We just didn't want to believe it was him. The days and months to follow were days full of grief, which included intense emotional pain, darkness, anger, sorrow, grief, the list goes on. For several months, dealing with daily tasks was extremely difficult, and responding in loving kindness to each other and outsiders was almost non-existent. While we were grieving, we were also dealing with legal issues, such as hiring lawyers when the insurance company of the lady who killed our son tried to settle on the insurance before we knew what happened. We also met periodically with prosecutors as they prepared a criminal case against the woman. The police told us a month after Seth's death, the lady who hit our son head-on had extreme levels of methamphetamine and marijuana in her system, and her blood alcohol was 0.06. The days that followed would get much worse as the fact that our son was dead began to sink in. While we were grieving, we had a lot of questions. Why was this happening to us? Why had God allowed this to happen to our family? Why Seth, who was such a great kid, wanting nothing more than to serve God, be a missionary, and raise a family? At that point, it seemed that everyone had let us down, even God. You see, we were led to believe that if we had, we had faith and faithfully attended church and prayed protection over our family, God would keep them from harm. We found out the hard way that that was a false doctrine. I can remember asking the head nurse at Parkland, why hadn't anyone bothered to call us and let us know that our son was there? We might have had a chance to say goodbye or tell him that we loved him one more time before he died. She said that when a patient is near death or passes, the minister on duty is supposed to notify the family. But that night was busy, and he probably just didn't have the time to make the call. And I got to tell you, that made me very angry. That they thought so little of my son's life that they couldn't make a two-minute phone call. I was sinking deeper and deeper into a dark place mentally and emotionally and spiritually. I was in a full-blown crisis of faith. I didn't know what to believe anymore. I mean, if one of the pillars of your faith 
your main belief system that you were taught to believe in was proven to be untrue. How many more of them were untrue? It's like dominoes. If you knock one of them over, they all continue to fall in line. And even though I felt forsaken by God, I still knew that God existed. I still believed in him. I just didn't know who God was anymore. I didn't know which pillars of faith were based on truth, so I hit the pause button. I didn't want to listen to anyone anymore for fear of being led astray. Zach moved out six months after Seth's death, and Sean moved to college two months after that. In a period of eight months, I was completely alone for the first time ever in my life. I'm a twin, the fifth child of seven surviving children. I wasn't even born alone. I had a college roommate after high school and moved to Texas with her, then moved in with Zach. I wanted his sisters, boss, brothers in Christ, my brother-in-law, and any other influential person in his life to tell him how wrong it was for him to leave me and set him straight. Seth's death was already overwhelming, and to have this happening was too much. I didn't want to go through any more darkness. I wanted that light bulb to go off, and he would come back immediately apologizing to me instead of men bringing the word of God to him. Men would tell him that he needed to decide if he was going to divorce me or come back home. Some men would tell them their story about how bad their marriage was. At some point in time, I began to think to myself, what's the point in trying anymore? I mean, we had been trying to make our marriage better for many years, but it only seemed to get worse. We had faithfully served God for many years and did what we could to increase the kingdom of God. The whole family was involved in ministry in one way or another, but that wasn't enough to save our son from premature death. I was also struggling with other issues at the time Seth was killed, financial, health, and probably a midlife crisis on top of that. Bottom line is I just didn't want to live with this terrible situation any longer. My counselor once explained it to me this way, our lives are like a cup or a vessel. That cup is filled with some good things, and it's filled with some bad things. When we're faced with a crisis, our cup begins to overflow with the bad things, and we become overwhelmed. A lot of people, including myself, have the tendency to get rid of the bad things by emptying the cup out, and in the process, we get rid of all the good things as well. I just wanted a new beginning, and I, wanted, I desired to fill my cup with only good things. That's what I did when I decided to walk out on my marriage. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I didn't want to live like this anymore. Statistics say that 85 to 90 percent of marriages where a couple has experienced the death of a child end in divorce. Listen, no marriage is perfect. We're all different. We all have issues and difficulty communicating at times. And a traumatic event like losing a child adds even more stress to a married couple. So you could say that the odds were definitely stacked against us. I knew God hated divorce, and my first desire was to please him. I started earnestly seeking him the day after Zach moved out, more than I ever have before. Proverbs 24, 30-34 were some of the first scriptures that re really spoke to me and were impressed upon me when I became a Christian years earlier. I passed by the field of a slugger, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. 
a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. I applied Proverbs 24:32. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction many times throughout my walk with God and experienced his faithfulness when I did that. The day after Zach left, I called him to tell how God was showing me where I was wrong in our marriage. As I said earlier, I prayed so much more earnestly and consistently than ever. My heart was open to receive correction. I thought it would immediately bring him home. While he was happy to hear this, he didn't come home. We did agree to go through the Boundaries and Marriage workbook together, and he would come over to the house to review a chapter. This workbook is a great tool to help you see where you are crossing boundaries, such as telling a person their feelings are wrong. It helped me to see how we are different people and are going to react differently to things. He didn't have to agree with everything I said or did. I became very involved in women's ministry, giving messages at the Center of Hope Homeless Shelter for women in Gatesville Prison because I knew how important it was to stay connected to God and to do things for others in very dark times. I surrounded myself with godly women who would pray. and tell me what I needed to hear, not what I wanted to hear or to side with me. I wanted these women to keep me focused on God. This meant that my circle of friends that I confided in was much smaller than those I call friends. God used one of these women in a mighty way. She told me that I wasn't the Holy Spirit and that made such a big impact on me. At first I was taken back, almost as if I had been slapped in the face. Of course I'm not. Then I thought about what she said. I was the one trying to convict Zach of what he should and shouldn't be doing. I was judging him. I didn't see that I wasn't trusting God to lead and teach Zach. I thought I was being the helper God created me to be according to Genesis 2.18. I began to see that if the Holy Spirit was the one who convicts me, why did I think I needed to convict and lead Zach? I wasn't supposed to change Zach. I was supposed to receive instruction on how I can change. I also didn't see that I was was not obeying 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. I discovered that I placed expectations on Zach that only God could fulfill. My trust was in Zach and not God in many areas. When I moved out, I buried myself in my work and spent a lot of time with my youngest son, Sean. We could spend hours working out at the gym and talking. We grew very close during that time. It surprised me when Jean said she was sorry and that she wanted me to come back. It surprised me because of all the angry words and bitter arguments that we had over the years. You know, how could two people say all those things, say all the hurtful things if they really loved each other? In my mind, it just wasn't possible. But in time, as we went through the Boundaries and Marriage book together, God began to open my eyes to the truth. He began to show me where I had been wrong, where I had fallen short as a husband. God also began the work of revealing his true nature and his true character to me. And because I once had a false image of who God was, Gene and I will never attend another church that doesn't teach by expository preaching. 
It's all too easy and tempting for a man to add his own interpretation when developing topical sermons, which can lead to taking scripture out of context and make, to make it fit their own narrative. This can lead to false doctrines of men and demons. Zach and I learned to handle our finances in a way that was agreeable to both of us. I learned to quit overreacting to things and to quit trying to be the Holy Spirit, although sometimes that does creep back in when I'm not in the Word or working on my salvation. You know the times when I am trying to take the speck out of his eye and totally avoiding the plank in my eye. Romans 8, 28 through 29 has been one of my scriptures of hope since my son's death. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Marriages will work out if you surrender yourselves to God and allow him to work on you in your marriage. Remain obedient to him and his word, not your feelings. By remaining obedient to God, I was able to forgive Zach for walking out. I was able not to not allow his leaving cause me to be a very bitter and angry wife while grieving the death of my son. One miracle that I heard during the darkest of times was Zach telling me that his dad told him not to get involved with another woman while we were trying to work things out. Zach's dad was married six times and was an unbeliever. In closing, I have to say that I'm not proud of leaving my wife, and I certainly don't condone or recommend it. I would like to take some credit for the state of our marriage today, but I can't. I simply saw how Jean's heart had changed towards our marriage. And because of what God was doing in her life, she was being obedient to God's word and focusing on living by faith. The anger and bitterness began to melt away, and she wasn't trying to fix what was wrong with me anymore. Listen, you just can't fix your spouse. Only God can do that. Simply focus on what you need to walk this life of faith. She had learned to turn all that over to God. She was a perfect example of a Proverbs 31 woman. I guess I needed that assurance that things were changing for the better before I would take that leap of faith and give our marriage another try. But all the glory belongs to God because he did the work and showed us the way. All we had to do was open our heart and minds to his authority and his instruction and let the Holy Spirit work on both of us. But I would add, had Gene not been willing to submit to God's authority, we wouldn't be a couple today. It took a whole lot of faith and patience to heal our marriage. And only when we were both willing to let God show us the way and submit ourselves to his authority did real reconciliation happen. I believe the most compelling takeaways from our testimony are this. You cannot put your trust in man or man-made institutions when it comes to critical issues like marriage. Man will let you down. Man-made institutions will let you down. And yes, sometimes even the church will let you down. But God is faithful. Psalms chapter 27 says, for my, for my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Second Timothy chapter 2 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The Bible also says in Matthew, have you not heard that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So if it's God's desire that our married couple remain together, and he is faithful and cannot deny himself, he will heal your marriage, if you simply have the faith and let him do the work.
We came from Cross Point Fellowship Church, the parent church of Cross Point Community Church. That is where we first experienced a community group and where we truly started to heal as a couple about five years after Seth's death. Our community group was led by Aaron Hamilton and our longtime friends Nathan and Holly Green were members. We felt welcome to this group and knew that it was safe to be transparent when we talked about our experience. We also knew that not only were we being helped, but that we were also helping those in our group through what we've learned. I'd also like to say a few things about Cross Point Community Church. I think this will probably be a little helpful to younger couples and to those of you who may be new to Cross Point Community. You know, we've been members of a Baptist church, Spirit-filled church, Pentecostal church, non-denominational churches, some small, some large. However, it's been our experience that um, the things that have had the most positive influence in our faith are plurality of leadership, expository teaching, and authentic people. Plurality of leadership keeps the church focused on God's design for the church as opposed to one's own personal agenda. Expository teaching keeps pastors in the body from getting into the ditches on either side of the road. If we simply leave the scriptures where God has placed them and read them in proper context, we won't be deceived and we won't have a false image of who God really is. Even though we're a small church body, there's a large number of authentic God-fearing Christians who are willing to walk side by side with believers and so into the lives of others. You know, Gene said some, already read some examples, Aaron and Stephanie, I can't say enough how much we appreciate their friendship. Holly and Nathan Green, um, Tony and Reef Biero who are not here, I don't see them anyway. I could just, the list goes on and on. You know, Ryan and Elizabeth, uh, our community group, it's just, it's, I just wanna say to sum it all up that um, you're in a good place to grow spiritually and develop healthy, healthy relationships and gain a clear understanding of who God is and who God is not. Um, I want to say a few words um, about the most important lesson I had to learn throughout this whole experience, and I think a lot of guys will, will agree with me or at least can, uh, can understand. The hardest thing for me to do was learn how to submit to the authority of God and submit to the authority of the Word. It didn't, it didn't happen overnight, it took time. But once we learned together as a couple to submit to God and his teaching, then everything started to fall in line. No life wasn't perfect. There's still challenges and struggles, but we can handle them together and our faith is in God and his ability to handle those situations and not in each other as the way we respond to them. So I, it's my prayer that as we walk this life of faith together that the men learn day by day to submit more and more to God's authority as we walk this life together. And another thing I would like to add is um, one thing that I heard several times when I shared this testimony or talk about God is a comment about my faith if, as if others couldn't have or don't have the faith that I have. I sometimes don't even have that. I learned to not place my faith in the end result. My faith is in Jesus, the founder and perfecter of my faith. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. 
I learned to talk to God, go through the scriptures, and met with godly women daily, sometimes more often than that. Some of those women are here today. Everyone who believes can have that faith. While the Boundaries in Marriage book helped, it was only a tool. If you're a believer in Christ, then talk to God so that you too may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. In closing, I'd just like to thank you guys for allowing us this time to share our testimony. And it's our prayer that God increases your faith as we all learn to submit to his authority. And I pray that God gives us all the patience to allow the Holy Spirit to perform his work in us so that all of our marriages can become a, can be can be prosperous and we can all become a testimony to others for the glory of God and the kingdom of God. So thank you for letting us have this time. Appreciate it.